0: involved in apocalyptic speculation and preparation that process often changes them and that many of the people who that I was with who were all I consider very good decent people you know who would have helped the neighbors who brought bought a bunch of extra food that we were going to share with the neighbors <laughs> you know but in the end they came out and many of them went into helping professions many of them went into alternative medicine they, they actually really do care about the world. And so there's this stereotype that, oh, if you're religious or if you're Christian, if you believe in an apocalypse, then you don't care about making the world better. And one of the things we talk about is from the study of religion's perspective is that it's possible for people to hold two conflicting ideas in their mind at the same time, and that apocalypse is often about people who are looking for some kind of justice in the world.
1: Your love unfolds, controls your dreams, persuades your thoughts,
2: Hello and welcome to The Sacred Speaks. This is John Price, your host. Thanks for coming. Today I'm talking with Dr. Erin Prophet. She's an old friend of the podcast. She was on episode 48. If you'd like deeper exploration of her life and kind of her central theories, check that episode out. I reached out to Erin to talk to her about the apocalypse. I, in noticing the kind of intensity that is happening in the world, it's it's not a leap to think about and I hear people making jokes about this all the time, something's ending. It feels like a lot of things are ending. And that can be a good thing, it can also be a a scary thing. So, So as we're looking at the need for change, the need for how we approach our health and wellness, the need to change how we approach all humanity and who we include in our understanding of humanity and equal treatment, this is Pride Month in the US, this is a month of protests, this is a month of pandemic, this is a month of chaos, and people have taken to the streets all over the world to seek equality and to right a wrong, primarily in our policies. and you know, I, what I can't get past is that I I work with families, and what what tends to bring families or individuals into my office is a, a crisis or a struggle, or they're stuck in some way, and they need to change. And so those who are willing and accepting to recognize that, hey, every, all parties need to be listened to. So a family comes into family therapy. Uh, we have this, <laughs> and this is, this is a funny tangent, the, what we have is the, called the identified patient. So when a family comes in, the identified patient is the one who's carrying the burden of the family. They're the one that's everybody, that everybody's blaming. So they're probably acting out. But in fact, what happens, the course of family therapy is about redistributing that energy so that people are more responsible and self-reflective and they can take ownership of their part in these dances. And it happens in the microcosm on a family level. Of course it happens on the collective level. My struggle a lot of times is that we we are willing to accept the fact that in our families we need to change. We need to be self-reflective. We need to listen. We need to understand. We need to try to be inclusive with all parties so that we can feel like we belong. I, I don't understand why that is not a goal of all who are human <laughs> it it doesn't make sense to me how we don't see the this fractal that exists that that in the microcosm we can learn more about how to behave in the macrocosm because arguably it is more difficult to understand cuz we're, we're not in a family kind of relationship where we have those the the tension and and I just mean the tension of the container to actually stay together and work through something, which is, of course, um, one of the fundamental issues. If you believe that, even unconsciously, right, if you believe or behave in ways that don't recognize the need to include or be inclusive for our neighbor, with our neighbor, then, then we're not recognizing that golden rule, that very important golden rule, so I, I, hope, I hope this is a period of time of deep reflection and deep change, uh, because we're all in a big-ass trauma right now. Okay, so this episode was recorded about three or four days after George Floyd's death. You hear us reference the protests and riots that were beginning to happen, and we didn't quite get too deep into the need for systemic change, because, of course, what we're addressing is religion and the symbol of the apocalypse. This podcast is brought to you by the Center for the Healing Arts and Sciences, and one of the things we've been doing, all the clinicians and practitioners at the Center for the Healing Arts and Sciences, is trying to understand more about race and how unconscious bias and systemic policy issues that don't include all of our fellow humans how how these need to change. And of course, what we're doing is listening. So we're discussing and talking, but of course, listening and asking questions about how we can be a part of the change in the direction of growth, expansiveness, and inclusion. So uh, we're signing up to have hard conversations, and I hope everybody else does the same thing. And whether it's my need to see my son and listen to him and be self-reflective or listen to my wife you know despite how i feel in the moment uh, you know when we're in conflict or something we need to to do that instead of turning away we turn towards each other and again this is my theory i think we need to have a council of you know s- systems theorists and family therapists that are advising our our policy and helping helping remind us how to communicate, how to have conflict, how to have appropriate and healthy conflict, how to envision and imagine that you're connected with the person that you're in conflict with, how to be more inclusive. I I just, I don't, I'm frustrated by how we miss this. And when we lose the, the, the recognition that we're all connected, when we lose the recognition that we're all we all have an impact on each other then shadow dynamics begin to um, emerge and otherness is created whether you're a republican or a democrat or white or black or brown or blue or yellow or a male or a female or f- sexually fluid or gay or f- you know somewhere on that fluid sexual spectrum <laughs> we we are our, our core issue here is um, psychological binaries either or thinking and they sh- of course manifest in the in the concrete you know cuz cause, cause they do cuz they manifest in the concrete but when we lose the ability to think about we th- we lose the ability to think more sophisticatedly and again be more inclusive so i i hope that uh that we're all working to do just that, to be more self-reflective. This certainly is a time where we've all been put on our asses and are confronting our fears and our anxieties. And they're very real. I, I'm, I'm not saying they're just psychological. I'm just saying they're not just biological. They're not just concrete. They are um, spiritual. They are psychological. They are social. Okay. Uh band of the of the week or of this episode is Cutthroat Finches. Check them out at Cutthroatfinches.com. And I've got two songs on the uh, on the podcast. They are A Goodbye Letter and Stars. They're off the latest release from 2019. In event of moon disaster by the Cutthroat Finches, 2019. Check them out when you can. Uh the Center for the Healing Arts and Sciences, our sponsor. Check us out at the center for H-A-S. T-H-E-C-E-N-T-E-R-F-O-R-H-A-S.com. The Instagram handle, Center for Haas, Uh, all the other things, Facebook, Center for Haas. Check us out. And check out Aaron Profit at eprofit, ww.eprofit, P-R-O-P-H-E-T dot info. The theme music for the podcast is Modern Nations. You can get them at modernnationsmusic.com. And they've got a new single coming out this June. Check them out when you can. Look this project up at the sacredspeaks.com and for now, we'll leave it there. Aaron, thanks for coming back again and talking. I... Uh, your your ability to do this without much preparation is much appreciated because you just answered my email and said, "Yeah, let's let's talk, let's riff on what's going on."
0: Sure. Yeah. Well, it's an exciting time; new things happening every day. So I guess we have to be sort of prepared to be agile. <laughs>
2: uh, isn't that the case? Yes. So the the first thing, and I will you you had mentioned about. Um, you know, your your intro piece. I'll include all that in the introduction to the podcast. But one cool thing that happened as we were just kind of doing small talk when we were getting connected here in our first five minutes, as you mentioned, the op-ed you wrote in the Los Angeles Times, I spent my childhood preparing for calamity. No wonder the coronavirus feels familiar. And I think it's I mean it's I mean that's basically one of the reasons why I wanted to talk to you too. I'm sure you're getting hit up by folks because of the the parallels here. Um, but you know, I I will include the article, a link to the article. So if you're listening to this, check the liner notes of the podcast and you'll have a link. But now Aaron Prophet, I'd love to hear you. Just let's let's dive in. Sure. Yes. Well,
0: um you know, I started my editorial out talking about this of ointment that I bought 30 years ago um, to stock these fallout shelters that um, the religious group that I grew up in was building in Montana so I just kind of use that bottle of ointment as a symbol for all the things that people are stocking up on today, right? And obviously, we've all been doing a lot of, you know, ordering or, yeah, what am I going to do if I can't get my favorite this again, or my favorite that, or the toilet paper and the Kleenex? And, um, you know, what the point I wanted to make about the ointment is that, yes, if there really had been a... You know calamity like the kind that we were preparing for and if we really had to try to do without civilization Mm -hmm. which so we were Preparing for a multitude of things war natural disasters economic collapse So we had bought a whole lot of food, but you know what I've reflected back upon Many times in the past 30 years is that for all of our buying and preparation um, there's just no way to Buy enough stuff so that you don't need civilization anymore and that I was really hoping that this Crisis would focus people's attention more on what are the large systemic problems in our society? What is it exposing bare? You know, what do we need to do to fix things? I mean Obviously, there's so many people that are that are homeless and you know Now more and more people are have been thrown out of work and You know people are asking themselves. Is this the kind of world I want to live in? And so I know it's tempting to want to sort of retreat and you know many people who have Places to go have sort of decamped and gone there and you know So kind of what I sort of ended up saying in the longer version Which was cut is that so these one percenters who've got their own shelters and things or the people who've gone to New Zealand or whatever, you know Sooner or later, they're going to need other people and they're going to wish that they had done, maybe done more to build a better foundation and So the second piece I really wanted people to take away from my editorial is that people who get involved in apocalyptic speculation and preparation often it, it, that 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 process Often changes them and that many of the people who that I was with who were all I consider very good decent people You know who would have helped the neighbors who brought bought a bunch of extra food that we were going to share with the neighbors (laughs) You know, but In the end They came out and many of them went into helping professions. Many of them went into alternative medicine They they actually really do care about the world. And so there's the stereotype that oh if you're religious or if you're christian if you Believe in an apocalypse then you don't care about making the world better and one of the things we talk about is from the study of religion's perspective is that it's possible for people to hold two conflicting ideas in their mind at the same time. And that apocalypse is often about people who are looking for some kind of justice in the world. And we can, um, you know, maybe delve into that a little bit more if you'd like. But, you I know, people like only just about being selfish or being stupid or narrow minded you know, but it's 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 usually about something much more than that and of course there are many kinds of millennialism including secular as well as religious
2: well, and the I guess the the term apocalypse you know we tend to associate it with a literal apocalypse but something deeper is happening psychologically and I, I, I like that you're kind of mapping this onto justice because so often it is a retreat from some injustice in the way that civilization is living and a conflict between just what brings about happiness, and how various people want to live their lives.
0: Absolutely. I mean, people often forget that the word apocalypse simply means vision, and that it's based on a vision that was had by John of Patmos, who was probably, was not one of the disciples, but was an early Christian, that came out of a community that was persecuted, and had been persecuted by the Roman Empire, and so the scholars who study Revelation say, look, this is, yeah, yes, it's a very malleable text, and that's why it survived, because it can be applied to all these different disasters. But it was written by people who were hoping and wishing that God would come along and rescue them from the injustice of the Roman Empire, which at that time had torn down the Second Temple in Jerusalem. And you know, was also persecuting Christians. So at the time, Christians were seen as as sort of just another Jewish sect, and so it's really an an outcry for justice. In fact, in in Revelation, you have the souls, you know, been killed, you know, saying, "How long, O oh Lord?" Like, so how long do we have to suffer before you come back and set things to right? And so there's all kinds of different responses to disaster, and all kinds of different ways that religious people can respond. And many of the you know, we would consider pillars or foundations of civil society were started by, you know, do-gooding Christians who wanted to improve health and well-being and education. And many of them also believed in a millennium, but they had this notion that they themselves were going to have a, play a role in bringing it about.
2: When you say believe in a millennium, what do you mean?
0: Well, the millennium is often used as kind of, subtext for the return the prophesied return of or just a shorthand way of referring to the prophesied return of christ and uh there are a number of different places in the bible where jesus talks about himself returning and then the book of revelation predicts that it's going to be you know in a very dramatic way and i think you know you can see people watch these on tv like the rapture books and films and things like that so that's kind of like the stereotype caricature of how people think Christians view the return of Christ. But in fact, historically, there've been uh, a number of different ways including the idea that, Hey, we have to make the world a better place so that when Jesus returns, he will be happy with the way it is, you know, that we didn't destroy it and trash it. So there are a lot of environmentally oriented or kind of green Christians who, who would take that view.
2: You know, this, I'm still, onto this thing about injustice and what's fascinating to me about what's happening right now with COVID and isolation is that we're really living through a period of time that has been allegorized and imaged in many different ways, but we're experiencing the, the emotions and the conflicts and the depressions and the anxiety and the fear of other people and the suspicion and paranoia and so on and so forth. That, that ends up later being conceptualized in a way that's relatable through myth and fairy tale and story. And uh, that, to me, is, is what's so important about studying these kinds of texts, is that they really reveal to us an underlying nature of our nature, and we can see ourselves looking back at us. <laughs> <laughs>
0: That's very true. I mean, that's really the genius of you know scholars of myth and people like Carl Jung and you know who have seen that there's a reason why certain patterns and stories repeat. And you know there are other people who look at it from a um, you know cognitive linguistics perspective. Mm -hmm. That's not you know that's completely materialist, but it says yeah, this is why these stories persist because. They seem to meet some kind of universal human need and yeah, so I think that's part of why, you know stories of, of um, You know rectification From the Bible are popular in many cultures and people take them in different ways I mean even when the Bible was has been brought to you know to Asia for example it also kind of inspired um rebellions and revolts i mean you had for example the boxer rebellion in china which was a lot of people don't realize was kind of oriented around a christian apocalyptic vision (laughs) Mm.
2: so so how are you how have you been thinking through all this i mean what what's going on in your head about all this experience i'd love to hear you just free associate for a while about how this has been for you
0: pandemic triggered a lot of feelings for me that related to the time I spent as a child preparing for various disasters because when you're in, um, you know, I mean, I was seven the first time we prepared and then I was in my early 20s the second time. So there was a long period in there where I had a fairly normal childhood. But um, and when I was in my early 20s, obviously, I had just graduated from college, I put, everything on hold that I was going to do and, you know, didn't try to get a job after college, just went to Montana and started, um, building these shelters. And it was really about a two or three year period between the time we started building them until the time that we were, um, starting out, how are we going to live now? I mean, what, what, you know, these events haven't really happened. So, you know, what's the next step? And So obviously that set off a chain reaction in me that led to me becoming a scholar of religion because I wanted to understand The dynamics of what was going on in our group better but um it also uh, And it set off a lot of inquiry it led me to Carl Jung, you know It led me to the work of Jeffrey Kreipel So, you know among others, but I've also spent a lot of time studying other movements and Responses to so-called failed prophecy and there are a lot of you know a lot of people think there's only one thing that people will do if the thing they're they're Anticipating doesn't occur and they think they'll just double down and keep preparing But there's actually a range of things that people do sometimes they you know if, if the event doesn't happen They will just disband But if they had other good really good reasons to be together as in a theology a community they will usually just develop a new spiritual interpretation for the events and kind of keep going with what they are doing. So, um, but for me having this uh, pandemic occur and just looking out at all of the empty streets and empty squares, obviously at the time I was teaching a class on the paranormal at the University of Florida and I joked with my students, I said, it looks like the zombie apocalypse out there. You know, <laughs> and, um, you know I've, I've just said, you know, I hope this is really, a, I hope that we're going to take this moment to try to improve our our relationships, improve our lives, to improve and reach out and, and help the people who are really struggling and suffering right now. I mean, I, people have been sort of, developing new communities and You know finding ways to you know donate and barter things within their, you know communities getting to know their neighbors (laughs) Um, But you know, there's there's also the possibility that this could lead to you know, many people are concerned greater state control um, You know failure to act on climate change uh, you know sort of less environmentally friendly behavior rather than the opposite. So there are a lot of unknowns right now. And I'm really just hoping that this generation will, you know, seize the day and not look back on this 10 years from now and say, wow, that was the beginning of a big downwards, you know, spiral, you know, where we, we just let things fall apart. So I'm, I'm hoping that people are um, just going to continue to become more aware of you know, spirituality and of, um, you know, ways to improve our relationships with ourselves, perhaps with our work. I mean, I know a lot of people are thinking, wow, I could work from home. This is so great, (laughs) you know, but then there are people who are having to go to work anyway. And so it's just, uh, there's, there's these huge splits opening up, which possibly could become an avenue for new, Millennialists, like I'm, I'm expecting and anticipating that they're going to be, you know, new sects, new religious visions that are going to come out of this whole thing.
2: Oh, no doubt, yes. Well, so, uh, trauma and stress tend to do that, don't they? That it we're we're kind of put back on an interior resource that. In, in images and imagines in interesting ways that may have been happening all along, but have been otherwise put to the background because of all the shiny, sparkly stuff that's happening outside. Right. <laughs> I, I I share in your hopefulness. I mean, I wanted to say optimism, but I but I do I do think it's hopefulness. I I I, I don't know. It's been challenged a little bit, of course, with what's going on in the world right now with riots and. Um, all, all this uh, racism and all, all the nasty social issues that that continue to show up and I think just considering how raw everybody feels already to notice that there are riots happening all over the country that's just shocking and i but 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 all these things again my my hopefulness and maybe you can speak to this is that the wound has to express itself before it can heal and <laughs> I mean I wonder how long I can say that. You know, I can't be saying that for the next 45 years, but but I do think there's something about how we need to take an honest look about the ways in which we live our lives. And and I think that's the piece about justice that you're talking about that you know somebody else is in the driver's seat, they're making choices about how I live my life. I don't like it. I don't want to do it. It doesn't work for me. I was motivated by the kind of structures of my the money that I make and the, the daily routines that I have, which have all been disrupted. And so maybe I'm learning something about myself and my world that I didn't know before.
0: Exactly. I mean, I have to say for me going into, um, you know, we, we didn't live in the shelters, but we did some drills and we, you know, we really kind of said goodbye to people that we knew in the outside world. I mean, we had the idea that this was probably going to happen. And So it makes you start to think about, you know, what are your values? What's really important to you? Um, You know, a lot of people are realizing that perhaps their time is one of the most important things that they have and how they choose to spend it. Um, But I, you know, as I said, going through that incident caused me to really reassess. And I decided the most important thing I could do is to help. People understand religion and hopefully understand themselves and society a little better But you know, I agree with you about this wound. I mean, I think people are rioting because they have You know Been oppressed for a long time and been ignored and I think that you know the injustice that's coming out um, you know, we only know about this because somebody had a cell phone and uh, you know, was videoing police brutality but yet it's been going on for decades and it's been covered up because of this culture of you know looking out for the in group and not standing up for the truth so you know if it's it's been going on now you know that we've had these videos people have have seen that police brutality especially against people of color is real and it's been going on you know it's not new <laughs> And so, I mean, I'm personally in favor of reparations. I think that, um, you know, we need to do something dramatic. And, you know, all the little half, you know, measures that we've taken haven't really addressed the fundamental problems, including things like mass incarceration. I mean, my view is if, you know, to all of us who are fortunate enough to be able to shelter in place at home and work and still earn money, should and and who can chafe and say, oh, I haven't gotten a haircut or I haven't, you know, <laughs> whatever Um all of those people should be standing up and to try to end the private prison system for example to try to you know come up with an alternative to uh, Mass incarceration to work to try to rehabilitate people instead of putting them on the street So they have no choice but to go back into their old habits. I mean there's are so many things therapeutically we could be doing to heal our problems. And it just doesn't seem like, um, that's happening right there. There's always no money for therapy, right? There's always no money for rehabilitation. There's only money for incarceration and, um, you know, basically putting people down yeah. and throwing their lives. Yeah. And war exactly. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, so I, I, yeah. As it, those are some of the things that we could really start to address at, at this moment if we choose.
2: I know it, it happens, right? Because I I talk to a lot of people each week and there that is something that's coming online in mass, which which from my perspective it happens, but just not all at once. And so for for everybody to be thinking about similar things and feeling similar things, and we're kind of all on this ride of uncertainty with, you know, our anxieties and all the questions that, but we're we're all in that because nobody knows, and we're all getting the same bullshit amount of contradictory and false information and buried amongst the truth. So... I, I, I stay moderately confused um, moderately anxious very hopeful uh, excited that we have started to make these changes whether it's to a business or to our home life or to uh, you know now we've got chickens and we're like cracking eggs every day okay. but but I, I also notice that I'm scared uh, that that the powers and forces that kind of permeate our routines and you know, of course, those interests like economics and the like, that those are so powerful that they will take over this insight that we're all having collectively. Any thoughts?
0: Absolutely. I think you're you're absolutely correct that um, it's more likely than not that money and power are going to be the ones that triumph in this, in this circumstance. And I certainly hope that's not the case. I mean, Um, I'm working on another column right now. It's called religion can help or hurt in time of crisis (laughs) and uh, You know religion can be a powerful motivating force I mean you you think about you know someone like Martin Luther King African um, church and etc in which um, you know you have these great social justice movements coming out of and you have people having community to you know interact with we know that being part of a religious community is generally good for people's health you know except perhaps if the church insists upon meeting in the time of a pandemic and infecting everybody yeah. <laughs> that's what obviously one of the ways that religion can hurt but um you know another thing that can happen with religion is that uh people can go into the spiritual vision so far that they forget about the need to take some kind of social action as well. And I think it's really important to preserve a social gospel within our religion. And, um, the church that I grew up in, you know, people did charitable works, but it wasn't part of the major emphasis of the group. It was really more about personal development and self-development. And I've come to the conclusion that, you know, whatever we do to make, you know, to improve ourselves in terms of therapy and contemplative practice and all that, it's all good and we should do it, but we also need to kind of walk our talk and get out there and, and try to make a difference and, and, uh, support other people as well.
2: It's, it's tough in a democratic capitalist, uh, you know, monotheistic, uh, tradition, you know, at least in the States, that's kind of the dominant, you know, we're all about individuals and success and status and, Except those are extremely important forces that, ironically, were exactly what in the Bible was being written about with early Christians fighting up against the kind of big Roman Empire.
0: Right. I mean, all the things the Bible is, is um, you know, inveighing against, you know, principalities and powers and, you know, Babylon and all of the sort of luxury that goes on and, you know, even Herod, You know, was seen as someone who had embraced the Roman culture too much. And there are, you know, people uh, condemning that practice. And that obviously increases the more you have big gaps between the rich and poor, which has been obviously improving, increasing greatly in this country over the past 30 years.
2: We don't really learn from our history, do we?
0: (laughs) I guess not. I mean... You know, I, I really think it's that there there are really it's sort of a rare period in history when you have more equality, and I think that the tragedy would be if we if we let that if we let the moment pass and we just kind of descend back into this period where you have the haves and the have nots. And mm-hmm. I mean, you know, you, Christians can find it. This is you know something that was that I finally realized about the Bible is that it's a multivocal work right it, there are many voices in the bible there are many viewpoints so christians can find support for the idea that god wants them to be wealthy and that you know poor people are always going to be around so take care of yourself first right i mean that's part of the prosperity gospel but i think that we um we need to be really careful of those kinds of interpretations
2: oh, i know you really can self-select in a book that large can't you well <laughs> Could you speak about early Christianity? I think that a lot of times what happens is that you know, modern Christianity loses sight of the fact that it was born out of a deeply contemplative tradition. And can you can you speak to that a bit? Sure.
0: Um, so early Christianity is not my area, but I've I've read a lot about it, um, just as because I'm interested in it because yeah. I grew up with a strong Bible emphasis and, you know. Many people forget that, you know, the early Christians held everything in common, right? And that they've been all, often been cited as this example of a, you know, sort of a prototypical communist society. You know, share everything, not just—and it's because it's been the basis for various socialist experiments. But you also had wealthy early Christians who gave a lot of their resources to, you know, to help the group grow. And I think that there's many— religious people believe that there was some sort of pure state of early Christianity, where everything was clear, everything was obvious, it was very close to, you know, the time of Jesus. And in fact, we know that even in the very earliest moments of when the Bible was being put together, you had multiple viewpoints. I mean, you basically had St. Paul and his view, and then you had James and the, you know, the actual disciples who knew Jesus, who had their own view, and a lot of it was heavily embedded within the Jewish culture of the time as well, and the questions about whether salvation was truly to be universal for everyone or only for people in their group. So these divisions were there from the beginning. So in my view, what's important for people who are trying to make sense of it today is to find the passages that speak to you directly and don't delude yourself that you have the ability to discern what was Jesus' true intention. I mean, people are still arguing today about what Joseph Smith um, really meant or taught, and he's only, you know, been dead for 100,
2: you that's know. a hundred and... That's a great point. <laughs> you
0: know, so we look at the, the the evolution of Christianity, it didn't even really get institutionalized for three or four hundred years after after Jesus had died. So... I think it's important for people to realize that there were multiple streams that went into it, including, yes, as you mentioned, this contemplative stream, which was really kind of coming out of Greek philosophy and Neoplatonism. And that's often very obscured because uh, many Christian theologians did not want to acknowledge any indebtedness whatsoever to the, quote, pagan you know yeah. tradition. But, you know, the Jews of Jesus' day were quite cosmopolitan many of them spoke greek many of them um, you know had traveled there was a huge jewish community in alexandria and egypt from which uh we know that many of the gnostic uh, works came from and so it's just you know april de Koenig obviously has written eloquently about this diversity of views and so in a sense jesus came along and he was revolutionary and he catalyzed some of these traditions around him but he didn't invent some of these themes that were included in the new testament you know including you know mysticism and you know there are some of the examples of this um, mystical thought for example in the book of hebrews are heavily influenced by the philosophical currents of the day
2: so i i grew up methodist I would say socially Methodist. But it, it wasn't a very big factor in my life. And other than I did a lot of stuff with the church and I thought it was fun and it was a great social experiment and I, I would have meaningful moments where I'd feel some kind of sense of transcendence. But it wasn't, I mean, but, but I was always philosophically minded and I always wanted to seek deeper, you know, more contemplative aspects of reality. And I think I found my space in art and creativity and that's where i really got to kind of merge with with those essences it wasn't until i found buddhism that that and it had a technology that was was contemplative i mean there were very di- um digestible resources and practices so all of a sudden i'm you know burning incense and bowing and meditating for 35 minutes before bed and i had all these radical shifts and I, the the good thing is that i was able to reconnect with christianity and i did this largely through depth psychology and jungian theory because there's a, a lot of great text that looks at that mm-hmm. but recently i would say in the past maybe 2 or 3 years and and, and this podcast has has really done this for me uh, jeff kryple introduced me to peter kingsley who had written a lot about the the kind of early greek um uh, What happened to me, though, when I stumble across these kinds of folks is I say, wait a second, there is a deep contemplative component to Christianity that is completely amputated from modern Christianity. And what would it be like? I think some of the data on the pandemic today is that people are drinking about four or five times as much as they typically do. They are scared about everybody. They're freaking out about you know how 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 in the hell long can they how long can they stay at home, and mm-hmm. if there were some kind of contemplative aspect of the tradition,
1: mm-hmm.
2: you know it would be different. You know because the folks that I talk to who are contemplative are having these powerful experiences, mm-hmm. and folks that aren't don't.
0: Yes. Yeah, I have to say my my best resources are that I'm able to attend um, yoga classes online and meditation classes online, and that's really one of the things that's helped keep me sane in this period. And I think it's quite tragic that the Western Protestant tradition has, you know, completely abandoned the uh, contemplative practice, and you really have to look into Greek Orthodox traditions, for example. Or, you know, you can look at some Catholic rituals as, you know, and the cognitive scientists who are studying, you know, what really goes on when someone experiences a ritual or when someone contemplates, they're realizing that perhaps there is some kind of a universal response. And one of the things I'm actually really interested in is, is bowing, bowing the head to the ground, because you see this not only in yoga and, you know, Buddhist meditation or, you know, prostrations, for example, But you also see it, you know, Christians pray, and then Muslims also put their heads on the ground. And I believe that there's actually something that happens in your brain when you, when you, um, you know, in, invert your pose. And I think it it maybe unhooks something, something about your executive function that makes you worry and makes you feel that somehow you're being taken care of and that there is some something outside of you that mm-hmm that you can rely upon, even if you're gonna look at it in a Jungian perspective and just say, oh, this is my secondary self, or, you know, from an early psychology perspective, this is my psyche or my secondary self, or you're gonna say this is an angel or divine being or God. And they've done some really interesting work on this at um, one of the universities in Eastern Europe where they've taken a lab and they've actually had college students come in and, and bow down you know, do prostrations to see if it made any difference in the way they viewed uh, pictures of deities, which I found quite interesting because it it does kind of support this sort of universal idea that maybe as humans, we really need to do something like that. And, you know, one of the problems of Western civilization is that it's put so many barriers in our minds into like, oh, it's only religious or it's only superstitious people who do things like that. But I find that just going through the motions, even if I don't believe necessarily in all of the, you know, as George Costanza would said on Seinfeld, the pointless blather, you know, it's like don't necessarily believe what the religions are saying is going on. There's something that's going on when you do these, you know, these practices, which, you know, Foucault calls the technologies of the self, right? And um, so I think that it's too bad that we've, Come so far away from these technologies of the self that we're we're not able they're not able to fit into our western mindset anymore
2: no I mean other we, we as my friend Jim Hollis talks about it, he says we we find secular surrogates, and I love that phrase I love oh, yeah. it it's yeah. it, it's it's a perfect container because you know uh I don't sometimes sex drugs and rock and roll are more religious than uh <laughs> than other things but i but i do think um power money status um those surrogates that end up we we have a religious fervor for, and and that's one of my struggles um a little tangent here is that there's a religious nature to nature to our nature and sure. and what happens though is people forget that those kinds of dynamics show up whether you're, you know, believing in a guy with a beard or whether you believe in a, you know, guy from a mountaintop or whether you believe in a woman from a tree, you know, that, that, that's the essence of our essence. And somehow not being in alignment with that is creating an enormous amount of discomfort and fear. And we reach out for those surrogates and the pattern continues. Mm -hmm. Addiction.
0: Yeah, I think that's that's very astute way of looking at it and um You know we've been called homo religiosis and some people look at that as sort of a pejorative like, you know What's wrong with us? Is there something? Evolutionarily wrong with our brains that we have this need to believe in some magical power outside of ourselves um, but I think it could also be looked at in a very positive way that we can um transform our view of what religion is because we we have the you know, we have the machinery and the equipment (laughs) that Makes us feel connected to one another. I mean, I think it would be sad if we somehow lost The quote religious part of ourselves. I think what we really need to do is free it from the uh, the structures the cultural structures that are really rooted in past superstitions, and that we need to, and that's what, that's why I think the spiritual movement is growing so much, because people, you know, the old stories don't, you know, I mean, the old explanations don't work anymore, but there's something about it that still makes people feel better about themselves and the world, and that's why they keep coming back to it.
2: Yeah, there does seem to be some kind of pattern it's about patterns that exist in nature and the way we relate to those so that the term religion i'm wondering how your orientation has changed and evolved to that idea of what is religious
0: um absolutely so i think it's sort of a modern construction to say that religion is about rules and spirituality is about what's inside of you and that's that's why people call themselves spiritual. The but not religious part comes up because religions seem to be associated with things that many people view as as hateful today. You and know, be yeah, dogmatic, anti-gay, anti-woman. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, anti-body in many in many respects, and or there's the notion that one group is somehow privileged over another group. So those are all the things that. Um, people don't like about religion. And many people have had to leave the face of their birth, either because they were disillusioned by the behavior of the founders or the people who are supposed to be their, you know, their shepherds, or they've left because they didn't, you know, they couldn't deal with the Nicene Creed. They didn't believe that humans were, you know, <laughs> guilty. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So um but To me what religion means is any Any view that there is some sort of um, Inevitable positive force in in life and in civilization that leads to some sort of um, better world (laughs) and so I I think that I see Jung's work as being A Form of religion, although he was trying to start something that was clearly secular and not religious at all And he's kind of the patron saint of the spiritual but not religious but I call myself an agnostic Because I practice these things Somewhat a little bit ironically, you know, I think okay My psyche must be trying to tell me something. I had this dream or whatever, but I still don't Absolutely believe with faith that my psyche really knows what's best for me or that My life will somehow end on a good note instead of a bad note or whatever because I went through all this individuation process, which is you know, which Be the Jungian view. I mean We see all around us people's people who struggle people who's who don't have a good death right people who who don't Do everything just right and it's hard to say that. Oh, this was your life lesson Uh, this was where this was what you were meant to do. So all those I consider to be kind of religious concepts, um Not that there's anything wrong with them I just think they're a different kind of religious concept than the ones that people think they left behind (laughs) So I don't see a lot of difference between religion and spirituality even though i can understand why people feel the need to distinguish and i talk about this in this class that i teach on spirituality and healthcare because usually when the students come into the class they say that they are spiritual they're not religious
2: <laughs> i have such a desire to reappropriate the name religion
0: why not right
2: <laughs> it really is unfortunate it's such a beautiful word it's so when you look at the etymology of the term, it's horribly misunderstood. It, it's like the, the way it's, it's come to, the meaning that it's come to uh, possess today, is, it's just way different from what it's intended. And I kind of want to just brush all that shit out of there and say, let's get back to religion and certainly let's expand the definition of it. Let's broaden what it is. Let's reconnect with what it really means. But we, my, my, I guess one of my problems is within myself, and I need to note this and others is fundamentalism, and and that tends to be my big issue. Is what I try yeah. to notice where I'm a fundamentalist, where is my fundamentalism, how am I living that out, and how can mm-hmm. I free myself from that?
0: Absolutely, I think that we can all benefit from you know. Periodic, you know, reflections on on how how closely we're holding our our views and our principles. And I mean, it's really easy to say, "Oh, I'm not dogmatic." And you know, I like to use I like the word agile because to me, it's I think about it as kind of like a martial arts thing where you're able to sort of stand on one foot, but you have you know you're not putting all of your weight on it in a sense, so you can lift that's it goodness. up. And it, or, <laughs> so um I think that that's. A good way to think about religion and spirituality because there's always going to be some new circumstance that comes along to challenge um whatever is our current comfort zone and so um i think that it's possible for people to reframe their world views in in ever more more helpful ways i would hope you know i mean i i really be, i really am opposed to people ever sort of this fellowshipping or not speaking to someone because they mm-hmm. use that are repulsive to them, and um, I know it's not possible to have infinite compassion and infinite openness. But you know, it's it's just sort of like a dance that we're all doing, and um, I'm I'm far from perfect in this respect. But um, it's one of the reasons that I enjoy studying and teaching ab- about religion.
2: I'm having all these thoughts about getting deeper into your framework here because I guess yeah the the question here is what I know what religion well I imagine what is bad about religion right now I mean if somebody's saying well you know the coronavirus is here because you didn't pray that's that's one thing but saying that certainly our response to the coronavirus indicates certain social structures that need to strengthen and grow and all that. That's different. You know, it's a different framework, but so where's religion good for good right now? And where's it not?
0: Uh Sure. Well, I mean, I think that religious organizations everywhere have, have been pretty agile in trying to transform the way they relate to their, their not only their own parish, but also in offering, um, charity to people who who need things. Um, you know, the Mormon church actually donated a bunch of food to my town and I'm sure that was helpful. You know, where I see the, the pitfall being the problem, it's one thing if a church does it because they see people in need and they want to help. It's another thing if they expect to get something out of it. I mean, perhaps the only, unless the only thing they want to get is that people just simply look upon them as more charitable people as pillars of the community. But if there's a sense that, oh, well, we gave you this, you took our help, now you need to, you know, look at our doctrines or consider joining our group or, you know, see this as a, you know, you can see some more conservative Christian groups. And I know there was this big uh, debate about whether Franklin Graham's church should be allowed to set a hospital in, in New York, right, in Central Park. And there were people who felt that they, there shouldn't, you know, no one should, allow them to do that. And I, I believe that they ended up um, taking it down. Maybe it wasn't needed eventually. But, you know, certainly many fundamentalist Christian groups will use a time of crisis to try to say, well, you know, now that we've helped you, maybe you need to think about what you what you should be doing for God. And you that's right. And
2: play on our team.
0: Yeah, exactly. And, that's, and that really bothers me. Although, obviously, it could help some people, especially in the short term. But another way that I think, um, religion can cause harm is when people do suffer. Um, you know, someone in their family dies or, you know, they lose their job. They begin, it can, it can set off a cycle of guilt. It can trigger something in them. And, you know, people often, as you said, think, Oh, this happened to me. I should be praying more. What was, what was I not doing right? And so you often see some kind of religious revival that comes out of a great calamity like this. And, you know, I think the unfortunate thing is when it's used to scapegoat other people like, oh, those people over there, they were partying. Like, look at this, you know, um, decadent civilization, right? Everyone is drinking. They're only thinking about material wealth. They're not thinking about God. And that's why this was allowed to happen as, as as a lesson to us. So I think that would be the very wrong lesson to take from the pandemic.
2: God, yes, it would. But even hearing you say that, it just reminds me that, you know, when you look at any religious text, you really just, I mean, this is not meant to be so reductionistic, but you, one thing you do get is an understanding of the ways in which we think through and imagine the issues that happen in our lives. And so we can see these patterns. And I certainly think that's like You can see yourself reflected in the text by by saying, okay, well, I may not be dealing with locusts, but I could be dealing with coronavirus. And w- what does that mean? How do I respond? What are the ways to go about this? That, that to me seems like such a valuable endeavor to know those mythic texts from that lens.
0: Right. Well, I mean, it certainly would be a good thing. I think we would both agree if people came out of this uh, thinking, oh, I need to be... I need to adopt a contemplative practice or I need to, you know, spend more time with my kids or whatever, or be more charitable. Well, you know, if, if we flipped the text and we realized that they were all written by people who had undergone calamity, mm-hmm. who were trying to find some sense of meaning and, and then the Psalms are full of this, you know, sort of, you know, what have I done wrong? God, why have you, you know, deserted me or abandoned me? And um, so these texts, um, are with us because they meet these universal human questions. Maybe they're not answering them in, in very helpful ways. I mean, I think that, you know, one of the, one of the other ways religion can harm, obviously, is if people are so stuck in a religious mindset that they don't seek treatment because they think that it's only God that decides who lives and who dies and they're going to abide by God's will. I mean, that's, a little bit of a caricature because most religious people will seek out and they'll combine both the you know physical medicine along with prayer and spirituality, and they they kind of think, well, let's just do everything. And so uh, I think, but I think for the the more abandoned people are, the more they are without resources, the more likely they are to slip into this fatalistic mindset. And you can certainly go so far that you completely lose all faith in God as well. And that actually happened during the the Black Plague in the 14th century in Europe. You had all these good people dying. You had monasteries, you know, you had many religious people were dying. All the people were supposed to be the most holy. You know, it was just ravaging these community, religious communities. And so people began to wonder, well, if these people didn't survive, why does it matter if I go to church or if I, you know, <laughs> if I pray? And so, it, you know, there's been um, certainly some historians have suggested that the plague actually sort of led to the Renaissance because the old stories didn't work anymore. So, you know, I don't know how Long this pandemic is going to be with us or how many people are going to die and what you know What kind of impact it's going to have on people's religious faith? But um, I certainly think that to the extent that people you know Die that you have it has a much more immediate impact than if it's just a number statistic somewhere
2: but well, we've got about uh, four minutes. I want to see if there's anything else that uh, that we haven't said that you want to let folks know about or any thread that we need to tend to before we close off.
0: Sure. Well, um, I think just looking for my studies as a historian of religion and medicine, what I can really suggest that people, people do, we all know people who are religious in a different way or spiritual in a different way than we are. And I think it's just important to... Um, expand and broaden our approach and our degree of charity that that we have for other people in our lives, whether it's our neighbors or even the people that we're mad at because they insist on going to church. Um, <laughs> I think that it's just important to um, try to get within the mindset that people are in and to figure out ways that we can relate to one another rather than ways that we We can be divided from one another Um, So um, Alexander pope who um, Was a poet in the 18th century Um, you know, he was writing at a time when there had been many wars over religion and people were really tired of it And they wanted sort of an end to dogmatism and fundamentalism the word didn't exist then but Mm -hmm. He basically had this quote, which I really like which he says in faith and hope, the world will disagree, but all mankind's concern is charity. So, <laughs> um, you know, I, I just think we need to just find more more places to meet. And if they're virtual or in, in real life, that, um, you know, that's, that's my hope for what we take away.
2: That's a, that's a good way to finish, Aaron. Thanks for your time today.
0: You're welcome. It's always a pleasure to speak with you. You
2: too.